gentlemen. I'm really sorry because I am the person who is responsible for all of the changes in terms of whether I'm sit standing or sitting. I've got some balance issues as a consequence of brain surgery, which was pretty miserable, but it's all over now. <laughs> so my name is Sue Miller, and I head up the sanctions group at Stevenson Harwood. I've been practicing sanctions law for over 15 years. Um, so I'm a co-moderator of today's panel with my partner, Kirsty McCarty, who also specializes in sanctions, but with a particular focus on those affecting the shipping sector and international trade. We are joined today by an eminent panel comprising regulators from the UK, Laura Harbridge from Offsea, the EU, Isabel Montfort, from DG FISMA at the EU Commission, and the US, Claire McCaskey from OFAC. A leading market analyst, Michelle Visa Bachman from Lloyd's List, and a very active market participant, Richard Fulford Smith from Affinity Shipping. Would each of you like to say a few, few words by way of introduction, explaining your respective roles for anyone in the audience who, has main, who may not have encountered you previously? Shall we start with Richard, and then we'll go this way? Right. You are a rose between two thorns. So, I'm actually here to demonstrate that diversity matters. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to get a fairly diverse view, I assure you, of sanctions according to the sharp end of our industry. Our industry is struggling to deal with this fella, right? And we all know who he is. I had a little run-in with Vladimir a few years ago when I was the CEO of Clarkson's, from which I stepped down because our chairman at the time, non-executive Tim Harris, was being beaten up by other people in our industry. We've had a proud history uh, with Russia, as you know, in this country. We had people running um, investigations into what we'd been doing members of the royal family even. So we've spent a lot of time with Russia in this country and I've spent a lot of time trying to deal in the last 12 months with the reality that sanctions don't appear to me to actually mean very much to a large, large percentage of our community. That is why the grey fleet, the dark fleet as we like to call it, has grown. And there are good examples quite recently, of public and private companies in the broking business, which I represent, who I regret to say one of them doesn't even, isn't able to trade in their own shares at the moment, but that may not have anything to do with sanctions on this. So we have a combination of issues where sanctions clearly don't work, because otherwise you wouldn't have that scale of a fleet, would you? And it certainly wouldn't be broked by people in the London, basically, community operating through Dubai front offices. So we all know about it. I will challenge our investigative journalists here, please, to continue to do the work they've been trying to do. And they meet an awful lot of resistance, because I can assure you, greed knows no bounds. And I promise you that we have an industry today which is motivated by greed. Some people get paid an awful lot of money. Lucy was kind enough to point out that I didn't have a bad year last year. Thank you very much for that, Lucy. That's absolutely fine. But I'm also very easy to talk to because I don't work to scripts. I go off script. So as the only male on this panel, I will now finish, but I'll come, look forward to come back on a few other points. 
Well, I'm Michelle Vesey-Bachman. I'm the senior analyst with Lloyd's List Intelligence, and I've spent the last year investigating what we call the dark fleet. We've developed methodology in order to categorise it, and we now have identified, as of a couple of days ago when I finished my last quarterly update, 530 tankers representing 11.6% of the internationally trading fleet that we qualify as being part of the dark fleet solely deployed in shipping sanctioned oil. And I'll talk later on about the consequences and what it means for shipping. And um, like Richard, I think the evidence that I've, I've accumulated over the past um, four years really since sanctions were first imposed by the US on Iran, then Venezuela, now Russia, um, that sanctions are not working and they're, they're fueling the evolution of a, of a fleet that's actually quite dangerous and is an accident waiting to happen. Thank you. Oh, shall I do? Yes. Um, thank you. My name's Laura Harbage. I'm from the UK Treasury. Um, I'm very proud to be the leader of the bespoke team set up in the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation to implement the price cap on Russian oil. We were set up last year to do precisely that. Before that, I was working on the overall sanctions response to the illegal invasion of Ukraine in early 2022. Um, I lead a team of experts um, whose job it is to look into a lot of the issues that you've heard raised today, and we'll get into in a lot more detail, I'm sure, as we go through the, the panel. Their, their job is to analyze the issues going on in the market. We do that from a starting point of working very closely with industry. Um, our door is always open to anyone who wants to talk to us about the regime we've set up. We're very aware that it's very new. We also do that from a perspective of working very closely with our international partners. The nature of this industry means we can do nothing as the UK government on our own. We work very closely with our G7 plus partners, some of which you'll hear from, you'll hear from today. Um, in terms of what our team does, we put a lot of time and effort into writing what we think is quite high quality guidance to help with compliance. Our strategy is to help industry comply rather than necessary take, um, take enforcement action straight off the back, but we do have very strong enforcement powers if we need them. We also run the licensing, communications, and engagement regimes for uh, the oil price cap and a few other regimes as well. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining today and Capital Link for everything they've done to organize it. Um, if anybody would like to follow up on any of the issues afterwards, you'll see various Treasury representatives throughout the week. Um, my colleague Jason's in the audience today. If you want to appreciate any of us uh, afterwards, we're very happy to follow up on any of the topics. Good to see you all. Hi, uh, my name is Claire McCleskey. I'm the Assistant Director for Compliance at the Office of Foreign Assets Control. What that means is we're responsible for outreach to the private sector, whether that's you know proactive engagement to better understand the industry, which is why we're here this week, or any of the questions that we receive uh, via the OFAC hotline or the OFAC feedback line, which many of you may have used in the past. Um, before taking this role in January, I was in OFAC policy, which meant I was working primarily on the development of the price cap over the past year or so, working very closely with Isabel and Laura and others in the G7+. Plus, I would just echo exactly what Laura said, which is if you have feedback for OFAC, if you have questions, my colleague, also named Claire, and I are in the audience um, and would be really happy to speak with you. I'd say that engagement we've had with the maritime industry in particular over the past year has been invaluable for us in terms of understanding where we need to provide more guidance, where our sanctions may not be clear, and where we need to go in the future. Hi, I'm Isabel Monfort. Uh, I work in the sanctions unit of the European Commission. I've been leading our work on everything that's maritime related 
so oil price gap, but also the other maritime related measures that we've adopted as part of our Russia sanctions. So the sanctions unit is based in DT FISMA, which works on financial stability, financial markets, and capital markets union. And as the name does not indicate, we um, do all the coordinating for the adoption of uh, our sanctions packages, as well as the um, uniform implementation of uh, these sanctions throughout member states. And we monitor also the, um, the enforcement, which is done uh, primarily by uh, member states. And we do this for all sectors, be it trade, transport, financial, and so on. Um, while member states are going to be the primary interlocutor that you can have when you have specific situations, the Commission um, is leading on everything that's guidance related. You might have had the opportunity to read our very long FAQs, um, and we hope that they've provided the guidance that you need for um, the implementation of our measures. I'm happy to discuss after if there's any issues uh, that you've um, encountered and that hopefully we can also uh, address. Thank you very much. Thank you. Let's start with a general question. First to Michelle, Richard, and Kirsty. What impact are the Russian sanctions having on the shipping industry today? And I'm sure Richard is going to be controversial. <laughs> oh, shall I start perhaps? Never. <laughs> Michelle, you go first. I've actually compiled a list. So I've got go the impact. It's turned insurers and banks into de facto sanctions enforcers with additional costs for compliance. It's doubled the number of elderly, anonymously-owned tankers that are solely deployed in shipping sanctioned oil. Uh, 220 I had before Russia invaded Ukraine, 530 now. Um, two out of every three tankers that were exported um, oil from Russia in August did not have insurance with the 12 clubs that form the, the international group that provide 95% of coverage for tankers, which raises huge costs, uh, huge risks, given that these tankers are um, traversing some of the, the key choke points if there's any accidents and about liability. Um, as Richard will probably attest, it set the sale and purchase market on fire. Values, as, values of like really old clapped out tankers doubled as a result of the, the demand for vessels that could operate outside Western sanctions. Um, it's increased the use and sophistication and de of deceptive and dangerous shipping practices, ship-to-ship -ship transfers in international waters outside the jurisdiction of port authorities being one, spoofing their, their location another. Um, we've had the exploitation of regulatory loopholes with Gabon, Palau, Cook Islands, Cameroon, you know, registries with no technical or, 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 or any regulatory oversight now linked to large numbers of these tankers. And um, the business models that have evolved in order to um, facilitate these trades mean, as I said earlier, that it's an accident waiting to happen. So that's just the start. Well said. Let me add a couple of things. <laughs> so when we go to work in the morning, we look around and we see S&P brokers who, from time to time, get to be quite lucky to be in a business which returns them quite a lot of mazuma. It's called bonuses. And it's called basically convincing people that they should sell ships because the values that they're able to bring to them are so vast that it's pretty obvious very rapidly that there is a good reason for a significant premium being paid. That's just what happens in our industry. 
we have a pretty sophisticated, which we started many years ago, transparent way of evaluating what the old bangers that Michel has referred to is. So anybody who's in any doubt should understand that the role of the brokers and their pet lawyers is to actually produce documentation which enables them to transact business where they fully well know the destiny of these ships. On December the 2nd, 2022, the FT weekend covered an article which was actually referring to one brokerage house which will remain nameless, but some of you will work it out because their shares are not trading at the moment. The head of their research used the priceless expression that we don't really know the company to whom these ships are being sold, but we know what trade they're going into. In other words, the dark fleet. Now, these ships sail up and down the English Channel. I happen, my family comes from South Devon, where the RNLI is gifted a lifeboat by the Baltic Exchange every 20 to 30 years, depending upon the age of them. Those lifeboats go and pick up fishermen, why do they pick up a lot of fishermen? Because fishermen sail out in boats in rough conditions. But what they really never expect to do is to find great big tankers looming above them because the GPS is switched off. That is to breach Solus. The people who are responsible for facilitating those deals live in our community and they know who they are. Some of them, indeed have claimed that they might have sleepless nights, or maybe other people have sleepless nights. I'm afraid to say greed has come ahead of moral compass here. But the problem we've got is, prove it. And the problem is, as Michelle has said, we're waiting for the accident, and it will happen. Kirsty. Um, I agree with everything that's been said, but I would also just pick up on a point that you raised, Michelle, is that those that want to comply and are complying also find themselves caught by these sanctions. So those, the sort of irony about sanctions is those that uh, want to uh, be part of the dark fleet, do these trades, are able to, but those that want to comply, we see, are the ones that are often getting caught, where, as you say, uh, Banks are taking a much more, perhaps, cautious approach than even the sanctions. Uh, KYC has increased, insurance has increased, and actually it's often those um, ship owners and operators who really have very sort of stringent compliance are the ones that find themselves caught by it, and yet we're seeing the emergence of the dark fleet. Sorry, I don't understand what that meant. Caught in what way? Well, as in they find it difficult to do business. I'm very sorry, there have to be standards. And of course there have to be standards, but I was... I'm sorry, Kirsty. Uh, the truth of the matter is, if I buy a house today, I actually have to prove my source of funds. Of course. Yeah? Do you know what? You can walk into a Dubai bank with $100,000, put it on the counter and open an account. Takes four days, actually. Do you, uh, think, do you think that's helping us? Uh, sorry, Richard, I'm not sure I understand so what you're... The I, people I, who are I, being penalised by the sanctions, you're, because they're caught in it, I don't understand. What I'm saying is that the irony mm. of the sanctions regime mm. is that it is not catching those the who are breaking the, the sanctions. It is right. actually penalising those that are trying to comply with sanctions. I think what, what Kirsty is saying is that prior to the price cap being breached, there were a large number of European, mainly Greece, Greek-owned tankers that were able to ship Russian oil 
under CAT compliant conditions. Now, since the oil price has risen in July, and also the price of diesel has exceeded the cap, that's provided the first real test of the effectiveness of what is now proven to be quite an unwieldy and very difficult to enforce um, foreign policy mechanism. And so now we have um, companies for which their business model was predicated on, or European business companies, their business model was predicated on being able to ship under cap compliant conditions. Their business model's now broken, and I'm referring to Fractal Shipping, which is a Geneva-based, Dubai-operated outfit that has a fleet of about 27 tankers that's now had to leave the market. And also a lot of the Greek ship owners that were previously shipping um, oil from Russia, they can no longer participate. There are still some in the market. And the International Energy Agency has warned very clearly that they cannot guarantee that the cap is being accepted um, because what they're doing is they're inflating the freight price, which is um, not subject to the cap, in order to net back to below $60 a barrel. So there is, um, to my understanding, no enforcement. There's an attestation process and maybe um, the I, regulators I, I, I here can talk say, about that. It would be interesting to actually pick up on that point with um, Laura, Isabel and Claire because obviously... Um, certainly from Offsy's point of view, I understand that, for example, increased freight rates is a sort of red flag that you might see in terms of, yeah, or you might sorry, flag as a Sorry, but respect, Kirsty, the truth of the matter is, and you're absolutely right what you said about price cap, there were a number of people who were able to trade with the price cap in place. The truth of the matter is the Grey Fleet grew sufficiently that they weren't required anymore, so they did become victims frankly, of their own compliance in a certain way. The people that actually sold their ships to the Grey Fleet took a huge amount of money off the table, now being recycled, normally through shipbuilding yards, because that's what they're doing. Actually, the price cap worked extremely well. We did a huge amount of that business for Litasco and for other traders at the time, which worked extremely smoothly. The problem was that the Grey Fleet, the Dart Fleet, grew so much, the Russians just didn't need it. Eagle Section doesn't need to, to, to be told that he's going to have to pay a premium price because it was premium trade. Laura, perhaps you can pick up on some of that. Thank you. Very happy to, to pick up on the D7 there. And it's fascinating to, to hear the different, the different perspectives. I think from a government perspective, it is worth taking a, taking a step back and looking at what we've managed to change in the oil market over the last, over the last year. Um, Russian oil export revenues down... 4.1 billion or around that number in July compared to July a year ago. That is a huge amount of money taken out the Russian, the Russian war chest. Government revenues down around 44% in July compared to the year before, costing potentially hundreds of millions of euros per day, just the oil price cap on its own. Um, it is worth just taking a step back and thinking about the impact we've managed to have. That's made, led to fundamental changes in the market, but it is also having, in its own way, its desired impact on cutting off the revenue going to... Um, the picture my colleague, uh, my colleague held up a few minutes ago. Um, so I think it's important to have that kind of wider, that wider perspective. Um, on some of the specific issues you were, you were referring to, this is a challenging, uh, challenging new sanction to enforce. It's never, been, it's never been tried before, certainly not anything like on this, on this scale, which is why we're working so closely with, with industry and our um, G7 plus partners to, to work through the to work through the detail on things like freight rates. Um, I think we were very clear from the, from the start in our, in our guidance that this is a red flag for, 
this is a red flag for us. It's something that we'll always look at. I do remember the, the FT articles you're referring to, um, but it's something that can only be addressed on an international level. Um, I'm very proud that uh, my team as part of the UK Treasury chairs the G7 Plus Working Group, which looks into these issues on compliance and enforcement. We're doing some work now with our G7 Plus partners to make sure we're looking into all of those, all of those issues. Um, it was interesting, the language we talked about around being caught by sanctions. Like, we try to produce guidance that's helpful to all the industry, industry participants. We update that regularly to ensure it is helpful. Um, and that is designed to ensure that those who are caught, or however we want to express it, know what they need to, to do, and those who want to comply can do so in as um, easy to use way as, as possible. So I think we're all raising some very valid issues. Um, we know this is a complex industry. Um, we know that we've had a fundamental impact on it, um, but that's one of the reasons that we're so keen to talk to industry participants as we go through the process and work with our um, G7 Plus partners to, to do that. And that might be a good note. I'll hand over to some of them. Sure. I mean, I would just add, you know, like Laura said, all of this information is incredibly value and of interest to us. And we are monitoring this extremely closely. Of course, there's not going to be, you know, public updates about some of the things going on behind the scenes that where there may be about guidance or anything like that. But I think, you know, perhaps it's cold comfort, but if we go back, you know, over a year ago, the situation we were facing was we had two, you know, fundamentally oppositional goals, which was maintain stability on global energy markets so you didn't have people, particularly developing countries, harmed by skyrocketing fuel prices, and eliminate the revenue that Russia was going to earn by skyrocketing those fuel prices, that windfall. And we're, we're very aware, and trust me, we've had very blunt feedback from industry since the beginning that we were imposing a novel and relatively simple sanctions regime on an incredibly complex market that we've interfered with. And we wouldn't have done that if we were not in such a dire situation that needed a novel solution. So, you know, Michelle, as you said, we're in a different place than we were six months ago. Um, and again, I, all I can do from our side is assure you that you know, this is exactly the kind of information we're gathering from industry this week and are interested in. I will say just one thing which is a little bit unique about price cap, you know, unlike Iran or some of our other sanctions, is it is a service prohibition on our service providers. That's the way it's been set up. And so if Russia wants to go completely outside the G7 system to move oil above the cap, they can do that, right? It's a, it's a prohibition on our service providers. Now, that being said, we're certainly not. That doesn't mean that we're totally blind to the safety concerns that you've raised. That's something we've been gathering a lot of information about, the environmental concerns. We're absolutely concerned about that and trying to, you know, flag for industry um, exactly what you've raised of, hey, there's a lot of ships now that don't have, you know, international group P&I. That's something to watch out for if you're a port operator, whether you care about sanctions or not, right? You don't want an accident in your port and then there's no one there to pay for it. So the good news is at least there are some sort of non, whether, again, whether you care about sanctions or not, there are many jurisdictions in the world that do care about the safety of their port. Um. I think the previous uh, speakers have covered a lot of it. Um, maybe to react to this compliance burden aspect, I think um, we did, when we were designing the oil price cap, take into account 
the uh, impact on industry throughout the uh, design of the measure. And we did have in mind that um, because of this opposite um, goals that, that um, Claire just mentioned, we, we did want an uptake in this trade. And so the design of the measure um, does try to accommodate for this. We, we hear the criticisms that um, sometimes this is still difficult for industry participants to actually engage. Um, but we hope and try to um, provide the guidance necessary to do this. There's been incredible outreach to industry, I think unprecedented, at least at EU level. Um, and so hopefully this uh, can also address the, the industry issues that's just been pointed out. Okay, so the next question was going to be about coordination between Offsea, the EU and OFAC, but I think you've persuaded us of that. But as a follow-up question to Michelle, Richard and Kirsty, do you think that close level of coordination has achieved a meaningful shift in the industry yet? No, I need to go first, Kirsty. Well, I, I, the answer is, from what I see, yes, because we see uh, and have seen an increase in our ship-owning clients uh, in wanting to comply. They are concerned, um, particularly if, you know, if for the first time, uh, shipping was always, I think, concerned about uh, being a US dollar business, was always concerned about the impact of US sanctions. But obviously, uh, with the latest round of sanctions, we're seeing a much more wider um, consciousness about complying with EU, UK, and US sanctions. And so what we're seeing, uh, certainly on a sort of day-to-day -day basis, is clients asking how they can comply, what they need to do in order to ensure compliance, because they are very aware of the impact commercially, reputationally, if they get it wrong. say that the proof of whether or not sanctions are being, whether there's the, the sanctions are working, whether there's close coordination is to look at the oil flows. And in the case of the US sanctions on Iran, we're looking at 1.5 million barrels per day that is moving from exports from Iran to China. Extraterritorial sanctions they are too. So are they working? If you look at the flows, you reach your own conclusions. And we really have the same conclusions when you look at Venezuelan oil flows with the, the price cap, um, the G7 cap, that it hasn't really been tested in terms of the whether or not it's reducing the earnings that are going to the Kremlin. The idea is to keep oil flowing but maintain the, the price low. And you cited those figures from July, but really it will be the, the income that's earned from, from August and September, especially as the oil price rises, that will let us know whether or not that those, those dual um, responsibilities have been um, adhered to. Yeah, I think that um, we talked about how oil sales had reduced significantly, or rather the benefit that Russia was deriving from them. I think you'll find that actually such a huge proportion is now sailing under the radar literally in every way that it's simply not being correctly reported. In fact, it's quite handy because you've got in Dubai an Im immense amount of capability when it comes to arms trading. You can actually pop out and buy an Iranian drone and drop it on Ukraine the following week after you've collected your revenues from the oil sales. I'm sorry, I think that, yes, of course, the sanctions legislation 
scares the people who are breaching it. They're breaching it unreservedly, carelessly, and now they're having to get more careful. So I take your point that it is indeed beginning to concern those people. And I want to congratulate the media on bringing everybody's attention to it and heightening people's awareness of exactly how disgusting the lack of moral compass that I referred to earlier has actually meant that shipping stands accused of basically having Ukrainian blood on its hands. And I'm terribly sorry I use that expression carefully because the sanctions are in place, but put simply, it's only really now pressure and people paying attention to what's been going on that is preventing the continuation of the volume. But when you've got close to 600 ships already in the Grey Fleet, that's an awful lot of ships. You said 11%, I think, is probably the best estimate we can give. Our figures are a little bit higher than that, actually. But, you know, the reality is... Shipping stands accused of failing to police international waters. Nobody is going to prevent, if it's a Russian refinery in India or the Middle East, nobody receiving a grey fleet is going to stop it. Because guess what? It's got their crude on it and they're going to refine it. And when they've refined it, they're going to send it back as an Indian or Middle East refiner. And Shell and BP and other people are going to accept that it's changed its identity. That's how it works. Thank you. Thanks. Um, would you like to say anything, Laura, Claire, and Isabel, around enforcement? Sure. Um, you know, I think just one thing to say in terms of the reduction in revenue, I think you're absolutely right, Michelle, we'll have to see the data you know, that comes out this month and next, and the price of Brent has increased, right, for factors that don't necessarily have to do with Russia, right? There's all kinds of things that have happened in the oil market. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the reduction in revenue is based on the Kremlin's own reporting. And if you look at sort of the efforts the Kremlin has put into in the last couple months into changing their tax code and to trying to claw oil back, one of the things, you know, we don't want oil going to, or uh, funds going to, you know, non-transparent operators, or shell companies or anything like that, it's not always clear that that's Kremlin money. And I think you know we're very interested in this information from industry, and it's something we've been very open about. Is we want to hear, you know, from folks about what they're hearing, particularly if there's you know evidence that that money is going back to the Kremlin, like like you said. Um, you know, we hear kind of a lot of rumors, uh, but it's sometimes hard to to substantiate. Um, I mean, you know, going forward, all I can say is, again, that the enforcement timeline is, you know, maybe not as fast as the media's timeline, unfortunately, if you look back at OFAC's history. Um, but we've been very clear that anyone who evades the price cap is someone that could be subject to U.S. enforcement. And so, you know, again, we may not be as fast as some people hope, but nothing, nothing has changed at all about that. Isabel, would you like to say anything? So from an EU perspective, when it comes to enforcement, I think just, just uh, a point of clarification. So it's the member states who lead on implementation and enforcement. We at the Commission are going to uh, assist implementation and we monitor uh, enforcement, which means very practically that we exchange extremely regularly with our member states uh, through different uh, fora. Uh, we work along with our European Maritime Safety Agency, who uh, has an important role in 
in tracking for environmental reasons, but who's been able to ben put to the benefits um, um, its, its valuable knowledge in uh, tracking and tracing uh, for um, sanctions. And so our enforcement um, goal is, is really to identify these trends and um, our 11th package, which was adopted uh, just before the summer, um, has been our effort to um, identify these circumvention patterns that we've uh, seen happening close to our coasts. And we adopted maritime related measures to really point out to the fact that we see what's happening uh, and we're working with our member states. So even if you don't hear of enforcement action, it might be going on. Um, and you might also be aware that um, a lot of ship-to-ship -ship transfers that were occurring close to some of our uh, coastlines have now decreased exponentially. And um, for us, this is, this is good news, and it, it does prove that our, our sanctions are working. Laura, did you want to say anything? I'll just um, very briefly to agree with my, what my, my colleagues have said on the, on the enforcement side. Um, you won't see this as widely reported in the in the media as you will other aspects of this this market that is simply due to the the processes we have to go through internally there's a lot of analysis that goes into doing this work but that doesn't mean it's not that doesn't mean it's not happening obviously as i'm sure many of you will know from the financial sanctions space has extensive powers um our civil enforcement powers are backed up by a robust criminal option that's there if we need it um these are slow burn processes we have to go through a lot of process a lot of analysis it's quite right that we that we do that, but as my colleagues have said, just because you don't see that too much in the media doesn't mean that it's not doesn't mean it's not going on behind the scenes. And again, as I said earlier, that's one of the reasons we try to publish extremely comprehensive guidance to make sure that those who are willing to comply, those who um, do want to comply with the, the new regulations, are able to do so and know exactly what they exactly what they need to do. So we've got four minutes. I'd like to engage in some crystal ball gazing. What's next? Do you want to start? The, reg the regulators start. I, I can start. Um, so I think since spring, uh, the EU has been quite vocal about the focus being on implementation and enforcement. Um, that means extra extra guidance. Uh, we've published just recently uh, a, um, a guidance note about enhanced due diligence. It just came out a few days ago. Um, we have adopted the 11th package. And um, I think now also uh, along with our EU sanctions uh, envoy, David O'Sullivan, um, we're going to be looking much more into circumvention. And so what that means um, in terms of the future, it means more documents, more outreach, and um, based on whatever comes out of uh, our analysis, uh, possible measures one day. I'd say on the OFAC side, you know, our number one priority continues to be the Russian military industrial complex. So price cap isn't the only game in town for OFAC. We've had a regular drumbeat of sanctions actions, most of which have been focused on the military supply chain. We're working very closely with our Department of Commerce colleagues and of course with our G7 colleagues on this. So while we are very focused on price cap, as you can see from this outreach, we also have a lot going on when it comes to our repo task force and going after the assets of sanctioned oligarchs military supply chain, Russia's financial sector, you know, we, Russia continues to be our, our top foreign policy priority, and so you'll continue to see, a, you know, a steady drumbeat of sanctions. And as I know that you said you would answer a question on this, do you think there's going to be secondary sanctions coming? You know, I, I said I'd answer. I didn't say I'd give a good answer. Um, <laughs> you know, it's always hard to sort of look to the future. I think our Russia authorities are already so 
robust and we have such a strong coalition that you know from OFAC's perspective we've been able to target who we need to target uh, go after who we need to go after and we're going to continue you know to work with our coalition and with other parts of the US government um, to take action like I said you know export control and export control evasion is right now an area of particular focus for us thank you Laura, I'm more interested in the rest of the panel, so maybe I'll just be brief from a kind of off-sea perspective. I think there's three things that we're going to be focused on in the coming months. Um, as other panelists have said, the euros price being where it's reported to be is interesting for us, and that puts a kind of renewed focus on enforcement for us to really monitor the markets and make sure that we're doing our enforcement work when we when we need to, or where we see anything of see anything of concern. Um, secondly, um, as Isabel said, building on the guidance we've already got out there. An early plug for you, we're looking to do a podcast in the next few months, which hopefully be a new way of reaching kind of different, different audience and explaining what the sanctions are all about. Um, and thirdly and finally for us, we're doing as much international engagement as we can. Obviously, you can see from the panel here that we already do a good deal. We're also working with colleagues in Switzerland, Singapore, Turkey, others, um, to have those kind of conversations and make sure we're joining up internationally as we need to be. Thank you. So let's turn to the industry. We've literally got 50 seconds, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask to the organizers to indulge us and let's have a few more minutes. What do you think is coming next? I think what should come next is um, more oversight on the attestation process, but I think that will ultimately take all of the Russian trade off the grid. Um, and I think there should be an investigation into somehow looking at the, the freight cap because a lot of the trades that are being done, say, from the Baltic Sea to India, um, could be a, a very good area to focus on because I think there's some sensitivities with that. And finally, I've written about and I've seen um, some Greek tankers engaging in ship-to-ship -ship transfers in international waters just outside Malta with these dark fleet vessels in perfectly legitimate trades and this is going unchecked and um, uh, it, it's allowing these dark fleet vessels to reintegrate into European trades which I think is the, the next step um, to, be, to be watching for. Richard? I think we basically need to have much better enforcement it's not difficult to identify when ships are basically sailing illegally with their GPS switched off. They are a hazard to shipping. I talked about it already. But we all know who they are. In our industry, we know exactly how oil gets delivered, ship to ship included. It's time that we actually ask the intermediaries as well to actually work to a code of conduct. I expect companies that indulge in tanker-broking business, sale and purchases, which is what I have a number of colleagues here who look at. And we're pretty ashamed by the state of our industry, to be frank with you. But it's got to be stopped. How do you stop the trade? How do you stop ships being a danger? And port state control is clearly ill-equipped to deal with it without international support. These ships literally arrived in Athens a few weeks ago and outside the port, I thought I was looking at fishing vessels in a huddle. I was looking at tankers doing ship to ship. One ship owner in Greece asked us when we were talking about the emissions trading scheme, would a ship to ship operation 
count as a European port stop because he was worried about having to pay 100% of the 40% rather than coming from international waters. I mean, it is so obvious to me that the tanker owners that indulge in these trades are perfectly aware of what they're doing, but they don't think they're ever going to be caught. Last word to Kirsty. Well, I think it's just to pick up. I think sanctions are here to stay. Uh, it's certainly from our point of view, I think it's going to be more of the same. We saw the tsunami of work that happened, uh, trying to help people with the compliance, trying to help navigate um, the sanctions, those that want to comply. Um, I think uh, Michelle and Richard have raised good points. Some of it is it's not just about... and just identifying that so-and-so is not sanctioned. It's identifying those red flags and getting people to pull at those threads. The Cameroon flag, the STS uh, operations, discharge places where we know, and um, you know, we're, we're just lawyers, but we can uh, say that you know, if those things are happening, is perhaps ask more questions. P&I insurance. So thank you very much for staying with us on this graveyard shift. <laughs> and I think you'll agree that we've had a very lively discussion. Thanks very much.